this morning. I, bu- I bid you a very warm welcome because it is freezing out there. I bet you wish you had a suit coat on. The one, the one comment that I received more than any other when I walked in this morning was, we're going to have to break you of that tie habit. And uh, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, this is probably, barring your funeral, the last time you'll see me in a suit. And number two, it's better to be overdressed than underdressed. So, don't let it bother you, don't let it worry you, uh, and for heaven's sake, don't focus on it. It is good to be with you this morning, the few, the proud, the, uh, the dumb, <laughs> who came out this morning. No, I, I, I am glad. I, you know, we, one, of my, one of my complaints uh, about, and I don't do it very loudly because uh, I don't complain very loudly, but one of my complaints about snow in churches is that, you know, we'll have a dusting of snow on the ground and suddenly it would be absolutely ridiculous for us to think about getting out of the house and, and going to, to, the, to the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And then Monday comes along and it's like, well, I've got to go to work. So I am glad that you're here and uh, you are here by God's sovereign design. You're here by his sovereign appointment. He has a word for you. And I hope and I pray that the word will come with power to your heart and to your mind this morning. I want to tell you that uh, it has been a good weekend. It has been great to get to know many of you. I, get, I look forward to getting to know the rest of you who weren't able to come to one of our, I kept joking, but literally we had four meetings, four, maybe five over the last couple of days. And so I got to know a lot of you, those who you weren't. Um, I'll be here at the end of the service and, and would love to get to shake your hand and get to know you and greet you a little bit. Um, my wife is back there, and actually, there she is, back there, and uh, her, her parents, you might have met my parents last night, but her parents are here. They traveled all the way from Eldon today. They, they canceled their church. Her dad is an associate pastor at First Baptist Church of Eldon, and he likes to show off what his F-150 can do, and so he came, he came down this morning, and we're glad that he's here. He's an encouragement to us. I want to tell you that writing a sermon to preach in view of a call at a prospective church is a very dangerous thing for somebody like me. Because if I'm not careful, I can plunge very quickly into the quicksand of, of pride from which there is no easy escape. The exposition of the Word of God in such circumstances can degenerate all too quickly into an exhibition of self. And so the question as I'm writing this begins to creep into my mind. How can I preach in such a way as to demonstrate my gifts and my abilities, my wit, my intelligence, my sense of humor, my erudition, my homiletical mastery and my hermeneutical prowess and my ability to use these really big words that are super impressive Because at the end of the day, the danger is to begin to think that what I'm doing here at, what is it, 10.50 on a a Sunday morning is auditioning. And I'm not here to audition. And I find it very interesting that when you begin to approach it from the standpoint of auditioning, when you begin to seek to exalt yourself, how, how very often and how very quickly and how very easily you wind up exalting what is, in fact, a, a dramatically inflated view of yourself. I was reminded of this promise from the Psalms that the Lord knows our frame and He is mindful that we are but dust. 
The Lord knows that I am susceptible to pride, and so it is by no accident that when I began to pray and to seek the Lord's will as to what I would preach this morning in this in view of a call Sunday, that one verse in particular began to echo and bounce around through my mind, couldn't get rid of it, couldn't get it out, and it comes from 2 Corinthians 4-5, and it says this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The Lord knows that I am susceptible to come in this morning on the Lord's day and to make this day about me. And that I'm susceptible to to coming in and taking the Lord's word, the word of Christ, and using it to begin to exalt myself and to further my own little kingdom. But we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. This was the cry of Paul's heart. This was the focus of his ministry. This was the content of his message. Not I, but Christ. And I want that to be the cry of my heart. I want that to be the content of my message. And I want that to be the focus of my ministry. And I want that to be the heartbeat of this church. Not I, but Christ. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn with me. Or in this uh, suburban context, open up your iPhones to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first six verses and then we're going to stop and we're going to pray that God would cause by His sovereign grace this morning His Word to come with absolute power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. My God and my Father, I stand before these your people in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I do not want to mishandle the word of God this morning. I do not want to exalt myself. I do not want any of these people thinking about me or how I'm doing, and I don't want those thoughts rolling through my head. So Lord, I pray that right now, through the power of your word and by the power and presence of your spirit, that you would arrest our attentions and direct them to the word, And through the word, direct them to Christ. Father, it is my conviction that unless you speak, unless your word comes with the power of the Holy Spirit, what we are doing here this morning is for naught. It is in vain. And so, Lord, I pray, knowing and believing and trusting that you you work out all things after the counsel of your own will, Ephesians 1.11, that every person here, myself included, is here by your sovereign design, that you have a word for them. 
Lord, there may be some here in whom the light has not been turned on yet. I pray that you would do it. Do it. May the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. May he say the same thing. May you say the same thing in a mind or a heart that is darkened this morning. Put our eyes upon Jesus. Drive away distraction. And by all means, glorify Christ in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage, and indeed in all of of 2 Corinthians and a great deal of 1 Corinthians, Paul was defending himself against attacks that were coming from certain factions from within the church at Corinth. Paul had enemies in that church who questioned everything that his hands touched. They questioned his apostolic authority. They questioned his apostolic teaching. They questioned his apostolic ministry. Who are you to come in here and tell us what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what to do and what not to do? Who are you? They questioned his integrity. They questioned his character. They even questioned his personal appearance and his speaking ability. In chapter 10 and verse 10 of this same book, 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul is quoting one of their complaints against them. They say, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. That's what they were saying about Paul. He's short, he's squat, he's balding, he can't see, and he stumbles over his words. In the face of such fierce and persistent opposition, Paul wrote this letter from an understandably defensive posture. He comes out swinging, right out of the gate, opposing those whom he calls false apostles, 11.13, false brethren, 11.26, those who were threatening not only his own ministry, but were threatening the church of Christ that was at Corinth. And I'm not coming this morning with the same defensive posture. You all have been very kind to me, very kind to our family. But I do think that this passage is particularly relevant for us this morning because while Paul is defending his ministry, what he ends up doing is also defining his ministry. He's defining what are the marks of my ministry. And I'm going to contend this morning that the same characteristics, the same essential marks of Paul's apostolic ministry ought to mark my ministry and ought to mark the ministry of this church. But before, that I, before I give you these three essential marks, I thought it probably would be wise if we define what is the nature of this ministry. If you'll notice with me at verse 1, look down there with me. In verse 1, Paul begins with these words. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, which begs a question, doesn't it? What ministry? What ministry does Paul speak of? Well, the answer is found up in the previous chapter, up in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Look up there with me. Chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also has made us adequate, and notice here, as servants or ministers of a new covenant. Paul then proceeds on through the rest of this chapter to contrast the ministry of the new covenant with the ministry of the old covenant. He says the old covenant was a covenant of law that brought forth condemnation and death. 
The new covenant is a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of the Spirit who brings forth life and righteousness and peace. The old covenant came with glory, yes, such that when Moses received it from the Lord on Mount Sinai, when he came down, when he received this in letters engraved on stones on Sinai, he came down and his face shone with the reflected splendor of the glory of God. He had to put a veil over his face because the people literally could not, could not see him. They could not set eyes on him. But the glory faded over time. And Paul says, our new covenant ministry, our new covenant is not like that old covenant. The glory does not fade. It has come with infinitely more glory such that The glory of the old covenant seems to have had no glory at all. Verse 10. What Paul is speaking about in this new covenant ministry, he's speaking about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the good news that the eternal Son of God has become incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And that this incarnate Son of God took the sins of His people upon Himself and was crucified as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. That He was raised again on the third day. That He's exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. And that He's returning one day to save His people and judge the earth and make all things new. God has made a new covenant with his people in Christ. And now, as we sang, because of the blood and righteousness of Christ, we have forgiveness full and free and an eternal standing in Christ before God. That's what he's talking about. He is a minister of this new covenant gospel. A gospel that says that sinners like us are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood and the righteousness of Christ alone. This is the ministry Paul received. He was sent out as a minister, a servant of the new covenant to proclaim the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord. And I want to tell you that we are a new covenant church and we have received the very same ministry. The very same new covenant that Paul proclaimed, we have been sent out to proclaim. We, me, you, we, we are ministers and servants of the new covenant in Christ. Now, some of us are ministers of the new covenant in a more restrictive sense. Myself, Gordon, Jason, Dennis. We are are new covenant ministers in a restricted sense by virtue of our calling as pastors and elders of Christ's church. But every one of you, every one of you who believes, every one of you who is included in the new covenant is a servant of that covenant, is a minister of the new covenant. And therefore, the same three essential marks that characterize Paul's new covenant ministry ought to characterize our new covenant ministry and ought to characterize the new covenant ministry of this church. So without further ado, let's look at these three marks, walk through them, and then we're going to apply them both to the church. And I'm going to give you some promises based upon those. Three essential marks of a new covenant ministry. The first essential mark is this. A new covenant ministry must be marked by perseverance. It must be marked at perseverance. Look back at verse 1 with me. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Any new covenant minister and any new covenant church must be marked by perseverance. Because the ministry of the gospel is not for the faint of heart and neither is the Christian life. Why? It's because it's filled. It is filled to overflowing with trials, tribulations, 
and difficulties and pain and sorrow and tragedy and persecution. Let me show you what I mean. Just, just, just scan your eyes down the passage a little bit. Just down the page. Look at verse 8. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Just just latch on to those words for a second. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. If you're going to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's going to mark you. You will be no stranger to such things as you follow the Lord Jesus. But I promise you, and Paul would say the same thing. In fact, he says it in chapter 12 of the same book. But God's grace is more than sufficient and the joy will far outweigh the sorrow and the pain. Turn with me to actually to chapter 11. Let me, let me just show you a little bit more of what I mean. Chapter 11 and verse 23. Paul just here goes through his resume of suffering. All of the sufferings he endured for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. He says, are they servants or ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor. I've been in hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. How's that for the victorious Christian life? Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Do you see why he says we must not lose heart? Because it's hard. And he doesn't let you off the hook either, by the way. Philippians 1.29, he speaks to the church at Philippi and he says, To you, believers, to you it has been granted not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. It's been granted to you. You're welcome. He urged the disciples in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch to continue in the faith. Acts 14.22 saying this, telling them, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You will enter the kingdom of God if you enter through many tribulations. Jesus Christ has called his ministers, he's called his churches, he's called his people to pick up a cross and to follow him. With, which if it means anything, at the very least the cross indicates suffering. Following him will be difficult, painful, and will often involve suffering in faith for his name's sake. Yet through every trial, through every tribulation, through every job loss, through every cancer, through every disease, through every tragic loss of a family member, tragic loss of a parent, tragic loss of a child, we must persevere and we must not lose heart because Jesus, Paul, and the rest of the New Testament make abundantly clear that it's he who perseveres to the end who will be saved. You've got to make it. And notice the basis of our perseverance. Why do we not lose heart? It's because we've received mercy. Paul couldn't quit 
He couldn't give up. Why? Because there was a day when he was traveling on the road to Damascus to go murder Christians that God arrested him by his sovereign grace and revealed Jesus Christ to him. God had captured him by grace and had shown him unfathomable mercy. Paul the blasphemer of Christ, Paul the murderer of the saints, Paul the persecutor of the church was shown mercy. God forgave him freely of his sin. Freely by his grace, because while he was yet a sinner, Christ died for him. And Paul never got over it. He never got over the mercy that he had received. I imagine through the cold nights on the hard floor of prison cells, through the searing pain of the lashes, 39 of them, or the thud of the stones, what kept Paul going was the mercy of God in Christ. He died for me. He bore the wrath that was due to me. He saved me. How can I ever quit? Quit? How can I ever lose heart? Receive mercy. Have you received mercy? You can't quit. No, you'll press on for the prize of that for which Christ has laid hold of you. Your new covenant ministry must be marked by perseverance. Number two, your new covenant ministry must be marked by integrity. Any new covenant ministry must be marked by integrity. Look at verse two. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. My ministry, your ministry, the ministry of all who believe the ministry of this church must be characterized by integrity. And Paul gives us three examples of it. He speaks of integrity in in three different ways. Number one, he says that you need integrity in the realm of your morals. He says we've renounced those things that are hidden because of shame. Now given the context of the letter... Some of the things that he says a little earlier and a little further on. What Paul probably has in mind here are financial practices that were shameful and underhanded. He said, we've renounced such things. The very things he's getting accused of a little bit later on. But I think the principle is broader than that. The principle is applicable to other realms of morality. As a church, as a minister, as a believer, someone ought to be able to look at your financial records or your internet history or your cell phone data And they ought to be able to see integrity and purity. We are not sinless. We are not a perfect people. We are pilgrims who are on a journey of sanctification. But we are being sanctified. Therefore we are not those who hide our sin. We drag our skeletons out of the closet and into the light that they may be healed. No shameful secrets in the church. Number two. There must be integrity with regard to our methods. He says, neither do we walk in craftiness. Which is a really interesting word, craftiness. Literally, it translates every work. Every work. And it refers to deception that is based on the the, the thinking that the ends justify the means. In In other words, all works are in bounds as long as we're all heading to the same place. As long as the end is good, whatever means, whatever methods we're using to get there, it's all good. Any work is good. Translates craftiness. 
there are ministers and there are churches who will do anything and say anything to get people in the door and up the aisle as if coming in the door and up the aisle were equivalent with saving faith and entering into the kingdom of God. The new covenant minister renounces such deception and emotional manipulation. Listen to me, you cannot manipulate people into the kingdom through soft music and dim lights and persuasive words. People have to be born into the kingdom from above. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But there's a third realm of integrity. We need integrity with regard to our message. It says we do not adulterate the word of God. New covenant ministers and new covenant churches must never corrupt, distort, pervert, adulterate, ignore or abandon altogether the word. Because if they do, they cease becoming true ministers and they cease being true churches. The word forms the church. There is no church without the word. And when we begin to remove the word from the church or even worse pervert or corrupt the word, adulterate the word within the church, we've lost all grounds of integrity. We've lost all grounds of vitality. We've lost all hope that people will actually be brought into the kingdom. They're not brought into the kingdom except through the word, the unadulterated, uncorrupted word. So we ought not be afraid of, ashamed of, apologize for, nor be ignorant of any word of this book. Because all scripture is profitable. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we need it. We need every word of it. So that we, men and women of God, may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We don't adulterate the word of God, but what do we do? Paul says, by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. My job as a new covenant minister, your job as new covenant servants, new covenant ministers in a new covenant church, is to simply unleash the word of God upon a world. My job is to unleash the word of God upon the congregation, and the congregation's job is to turn around and unleash this word upon the community and upon the world. And through this word, then, God calls men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to himself and into his kingdom and glory. Listen, this word is like a lion. You just unleash it on people and watch, watch as God uses it to save and to sanctify people and draw them to himself. There's a third essential mark of a new covenant ministry, and that is power. A new covenant ministry must be marked by power. As we do that, as we unleash the word of God upon a congregation and upon a world, I just want to let you know from the the outset, not everyone is going to receive your message. Not everyone that you share the message with is going to receive it, believe it. Sadly, not everyone within a congregation receives and believes the message. Why? Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When unbelievers, those who are perishing, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, when they hear the word of the cross, when they hear the word of the gospel, when they hear the message of the new covenant, they don't see glory. 
They see foolishness. They see irrelevance. They see a hindrance to their sin. Why is this? Paul says it's because Satan has so blinded their eyes that they can't see it. They can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They are darkened, they are deceived, they are dead even while they live. Consequently, when the, when the gospel is preached to them, it bounces off of them like a pebble off a brick wall. You ever had those kind of conversations? It's just not sinking in. It's because they're blind. And that begs another question. So what makes us different from them? Why do we believe and, and they don't believe? Is it because we're smarter than them? Is it because we're more humble than them? Is it because we're more holy than them? No, and I would say God forbid that we should think that the reason why we're in here and they're out there is because we're good enough and smart enough and better and holy enough. It's because of grace. Paul tells us what the difference is in verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I love this. Paul reaches back all the way into Genesis chapter 1 when God spoke into a world that was formless and void and he said, let there be light and there was light. And Paul says, you know, this is the very same thing that happened to me and this is the very same ha- the thing that happened to you. This is the very same thing that happens to anyone who believes. God speaks into hearts that are dark and formless and void and he says, let there be light and there is light and there is life and there is faith. The gospel of Christ, which previously was foolish and irrelevant to me, now seems full of inexpressible glory. It makes sense. I who once didn't think that I was particularly guilty and particularly in need of a gospel or particularly in need of a savior. Now I know my sin and I know my guilt and I know my shame and someone preached Christ to me and I saw his blood as the only answer for my sin and his righteousness as the only way why someone can like me can stand in the presence of a just and holy God and it became the best news I've ever heard. My only hope. It's not foolishness. It's the power of God unto salvation. It is glory, he says. Salvation comes to us through supernatural light, through supernatural life, through supernatural birth, which is precisely why we ought to renounce all craftiness and all deceptive methods because you cannot deceive someone into the kingdom. There must be light from above. It is futile to manipulate people into a decision for Christ. Dead people don't make decisions until the lights are turned on. They need life. And that life comes in one way and in one way only. Verse 5. What is the bridge between the dead and the living? What is the bridge between... the those for whom the gospel is, of, is veiled, they don't see glory, they don't see hope, they don't see light. And those who see light and hope and glory and they are in love with Christ, what's the bridge? What's the difference? How does someone go from being dead and blinded and unbelieving and perishing to now being alive and seeing and believing and saved? It's found in verse 5. We do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Listen to me, the power of God for salvation is found in the preaching of Christ. Christ Jesus 
as Lord is simply Paul's shorthand summary for the message of the gospel. The message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to save sinners and to remove the curse from all of creation. When we preach that, when we preach that the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, born under the law, suffered and died in a an atoning, wrath-absorbing, justice-satisfying death upon the cross in the place of sinners, that He was buried, that He rose again bodily from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, and is returning one day to judge the quick and the dead and to make all things new. When we proclaim that message, God takes it and He fills it with a massive payload of divine power. And through it, he does nothing less than raise the dead by speaking life into hearts that did not have life. And speaking light into hearts that were dark. And awakening people to see the glory of Christ. And being thus awakened, they see, I have no other hope but Christ. I have no other confidence but Christ. I have no other plea but Christ. No, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It comes through the preaching of Christ. And the power of the Spirit. Listen to me. The church is not. It is not a collection of people. Who have decided to give Jesus a try. To see if he can make their life a little better. The church is a community of redeemed sinners. Who have been awakened by the power of God. Through, through faith. Into a living relationship with Jesus Christ their Lord. So. With those three essential marks in mind. I want to make some application. I want to challenge you. First Baptist Church of Nixa, the living, the saints. I want to challenge you as a new covenant church. Number one, be a church that is marked by perseverance. Be a persevering church. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. I have been so encouraged in my conversations over these last three months with your search team as they've told me how the ministry did not stop last January. It's continued through the past year, even in the absence of a lead pastor. I just challenge you, keep it up. And I promise you this, I promise you this. In the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come, you will have difficulties and pains and trials and tribulations both personally and as a church. You're going to have them. Just mark it down. You will have ample opportunity to throw in the towel and to quit, to drop out of the race, but don't do it. Ground your perseverance in the mercy that you have received from Christ. As we have received mercy, we do not lose hope. I haven't gotten to my promises, but I'll promise you this. I will constantly remind you of the mercy that we've received in Christ if you'll promise not to lose hope. Don't lose hope. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and run with perseverance the race that is marked out for you. This is Sunday morning. It's a day for New Year's resolutions, right? Commit that this first Sunday in 2014 that you're not going to quit. You're going to be faithful this coming year. You're going to be faithful in your attendance here. You're going to be faithful in your attendance in connect groups, faithful in ministry, faithful in prayer, and faithful to remind yourself of the mercy and grace that's going to make that happen. Don't quit. Be a persevering church. Secondly, be a church that is marked by integrity. Be a people 
who walk in integrity in terms of your morals. We, we are called to be people of light. We don't cower in darkness. We confess and we repent. We come out of the darkness and into the light and we're healed. We are not perfect, but when we fail, we, we get back up and we seek God's grace and mercy anew and we repent. We do not hide sin. We do not cover up sin. And so I challenge you this morning, strive to conduct your affairs both personally and as a church with the utmost of openness, honesty, purity, and integrity. Just make it, just make it a motto of this church and of your life and of your family. No shameful secrets. I've got faults. I haven't shared very many of you this week, trying to put our best foot forward, right? I've got faults. Lord willing, you're going to come to know them. And I'm going to come to know your faults. I, I know that you've got faults. I know that you're not perfect. So why are you going to hide it? And everybody else knows that. No shameful secrets. We renounce those things that are hidden because of shame. And as a church, we absolutely refuse to walk in craftiness. We're not deceiving people about what the gospel is. We're not deceiving people about what this church is. We're not deceiving people about what we believe about the exclusivity of Christ and what happens to people who do not believe and what the Bible teaches about about marriage and sexuality. We're not deceiving people. No, through the open manifestation of the truth, we are commending ourselves to the consciences of men. Commit to that as a church, First Baptist Nixa. Pastors, ministry leaders, connect group leaders, teach the whole counsel of God without apology and without corruption. Unleash it and see what it will do. Trust it. Number three, be a church that's marked by power. Remember that the root problem of unbelieving people is not because we don't have a new paint job. The reason why people aren't coming to faith in Christ, it's not because, it's not because we don't have a, you know, actual fixed pews and stained glass and we haven't done certain things right. The root problem of unbelieving people is that they're blind to the glory of Christ and you can't turn the lights on. They are spiritually deadened and demonically blinded to the gospel. Do you see that? How are they going to be saved? What are we to do? We're to preach Christ. Preach Christ to them. Or invite them to church and let your pastors preach Christ to them. And then pray. Pray pray that God would bless the preaching of the gospel. Pray that God would speak light and life into their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Pray with power. Pray that God would awaken the dead. Pray that God would enlighten the darkened. Pray that First Baptist Nixa would be a place where prisoners are actually set free, where the diseased are actually cleansed, where the blind receive sight, where the dead are raised. Where I love the way Gordon put it in, in our staff dinner on, on Friday night. He said, I want First Baptist Nixa to be a place where things happen that can only be attributed to the power of God. That will only happen if you will commit to doing two things. Number one, preach Christ. And number two, pray for power. Be a church that is marked by the power of God. So preach and pray. Those are my challenges to you. You can talk more about that next Sunday morning.
I want to conclude by giving you three promises based on the same three marks. If God is pleased to call me as your lead pastor through the vote of the church this evening, number one, I promise you that I will strive to conduct my ministry with perseverance. I will not quit. I want you to know that this is not some naive gesture. I am under no illusions that ministry in Nixa is any easier than ministry in Buffalo. In, in many, many ways, you trade one set of problems for another. I expect to be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I expect to be perplexed a great deal, but not despairing. I hope to be persecuted for all who's going to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But I won't be forsaken. And I expect to be struck down, but I will not be destroyed. And I want you to know as a pastor, I know what Paul is talking about in chapter 11 and verse 28 when he speaks of the daily concern for all of the churches. But I also believe that the grace of God is more than sufficient for every need of myself and of my family and of this church. And I'm keenly aware of the unfathomable mercy that I've received through Christ. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. I will not forsake Christ and I will not forsake his flock. Number two, I promise you that I will strive to conduct my ministry with integrity. No shameful secrets. My financial dealings with the church are open to review by any member of the church. For nearly a decade now, our, our home computers, our personal computers have been loaded with software that send a weekly email to my wife, a review of, our, of my internet habits. I intend for my own safety and for your own peace of mind to have the pastoral staff review my office computer history and phone on a regular basis and to hold me accountable for my dealings with the opposite sex both in counseling and visitation. It's not because I intend to fail. It's because the ministry of the gospel is far too important. And I trust myself far too little. Taking no chances, no shameful secrets. And I renounce and I abhor all deceptive and manipulative methods of preaching and evangelism. I will not do it. Such methods are self-defeating anyway, right? They only lead to false conversions in unbiblical and unhealthy churches. You don't want that. Rather, I intend to unleash the word of God upon you in the power of the Spirit week by week and watch as God does his sanctifying and his saving work in your midst. Number three, I promise you that I will preach Christ and I'll pray for power. I'll pray that God will bless the preaching with divine power so that the darkened receive light and the dead receive life and the blind receive sight and the unbelieving come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I want nothing more than to be, for you to be a church that sees the glory of Christ. I want Nixa to see the glory of Christ. Through you, I want the nations to see the glory of Christ. And that happens through the preaching of Christ Jesus as Lord and myself as your bondservant for Christ's sake. I want that to be the cry of my ministry. I want it to be the content of my preaching. I want it to be the focus of this church. Four words. Not I, but Christ. Let's pray.